We're reading from um, 9. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 19. Through to 10, 13, and it is on page 985. If anyone wants Bibles, they're up the back. Paul's use of his freedom. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone. To win as many as possible, to the Jews, I became like a Jew. To win the Jews, to those under the law, I became like one under the law though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like, like one not having the law. Though I am not free from God's law, but under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak I became weak, to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that I... So that by all possible means I might have saved some. I do this for the sake of the gospel that I might share in its blessings. And do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get that prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get the crown that will not last but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like some running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. Now I strike a blow to my body and make it my slow so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be dissatisfied, uh, disqualified from the prize. And we go on to chapter 10 with the warnings from Israel's history. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under a cloud, that they passed through the and, and they all passed through the sea. They were baptized into Moses in the cloud in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food. They drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them. And that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things occurred as, as an example to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it was written. People sat down to eat and drink and got up in, to indulge in revelry. We should not commit sexual, immor sexual immorality as some of them did. Only one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ as some of them did and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as, an example, as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So that if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you do not fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way 
out so that you can endure it. Okay, let's pray. Father, we thank you for the precious word. It's, um, it's a hard word. It's challenging. And we ask for the grace of your Holy Spirit to help us both to understand it and to live it. That we might be doers of the word, reliant on you, and not just hearing things that are interesting to us. Challenge us by the power and the grace of your gospel to sacrifice ourselves for the sake of others. For Jesus' sake we ask it. Amen. I wonder if you've ever smelled dynamic lifter. I reckon if you've, if you've smelt it, you will know. Uh, anyone come across Dynamic Lifter? Yeah, I think most of us have. Dynamic Lifter is a processed and aged chukpu-based fertiliser. And it smells like it. Uh, it's fantastic for gardens and lawns, uh, but the smell is terrible. It's, uh, there's no two ways around it. I think some people, though, might come to value and appreciate even the smell of Dynamic Lifter because of all the good it does. Well, I want to put to you that the gospel of Jesus Christ is like a kind of heavenly Dynamic Lifter, not so much in its smell but in its effect, what it produces in us. The new life it generates in, in a person who is dead in trespasses and sins and the ongoing energy for life that it gives is just astonishing. The gospel of Jesus Christ lifts us up. It is a dynamic lifter. It lifts us up toward God. It lifts us up into the heavenly realms and we think about the things of God and it lifts us out of ourselves to consider others. It nurtures within us what can only be described as a conscientious willingness to sacrifice for the glory of God and the good of others. Jesus puts it this way in Luke 9.23, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. And this is precisely what faith in Jesus Christ brings about. For those of us who are Christians, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the aroma of life itself. But to many, it's not. It's the stench of death because it seems to indicate, why would you want that? You're in, you're in bondage to following someone else. You, what's the good? Where's the joy? I want to please myself. As a young Christian many years ago, an elder in my home church explained the grace of God that comes to us in the gospel this way. This is how he put it to me. He said, it's G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. Now, it's an old saying. It doesn't fully sum up the gospel, but I tell you what, over the years, I've come back to that time and again and thought about it. God's riches at Christ's expense. Jesus laid down his life for me. 
Why should I not lay down my life for him? Why should I not, out of gratitude, sacrifice something for him who sacrificed his all to me? It's acted as a kind of a, 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 a focus for how I can live my life, and it's in line with the gospel. So in today's message, we find that Paul is so gripped by this truth of what Jesus has done for him that he is willing to sacrifice himself for the good of others. And when you think about it, that was a complete turning inside out of the guy who was once the Pharisee, Saul, who was persecuting Christians, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, he was a champion of Jewish supremacy, etc., and now he becomes the apostle to the Gentiles. That is some dynamic lifting. That is some transformation of heart, and he, to the point of beating his body. So let's look at what Paul says about what he does for the sake of others. He willingly sacrificed his own freedoms for the sake of winning as many others as possible to faith in the Lord. So in verses 19 to 23, Paul explains the how and the why of why he sacrifices some of his God-given apostolic rights under the gospel. So to the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I've become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. Paul's ethnicity no longer defined his identity. Christ's calling as an apostle to the Gentiles had lifted Paul up to care about God's plan of salvation for all people, not just his own people. He still had a heart for the Jews, but he also had a heart for the Gentiles. And he names the groups of people he is earnest to reach with the gospel and how he behaves with each group as he seeks to win them for Christ. So let's look at these groups. He says, first of all, to the Jews in chapter 9, verse 20, his own people who had rejected the Messiah. When he was with Jews, Paul behaved outwardly like a Jew who obeyed all the law of Moses to become righteous with God. That's what they thought they had to do, obey all Moses' law and they would be living a righteous life before God. And he did this not to be deceitful, but to gain the right to be heard. He went to a synagogue. If he went to a synagogue flouting all their rules and customs, he wouldn't get through the front door, let alone be invited to stand up and preach to the gathered congregation. It is not as though there was anything in the law of Moses that contradicted what he believed as a Christian. It was not compromise to submit himself to the law in order to explain the one who had fulfilled the law. So he did that so that his countrymen might hear the good news of Jesus and be saved. 
So each time he preached the gospel of Jesus Christ, there were some who believed, like Lydia, a seller of clothing, Sosthenes, the ruler of a synagogue, came to believe. He risked his life because there were also people who tried to beat him and kill him as a result. Some loved it, some hated it. But that's what he did in order to sacrifice himself for the sake of the gospel and share in its blessings that his countrymen might hear. Then he says in the second part of 20, to those under the law. That's probably similar to the Jews, but probably Jews who believed in the Messiah but had scruples about remaining obedient to the Old Testament law in ways that were at odds with the gospel, like all males still need to be circumcised. All believers must observe God's appointed feasts and follow Old Testament dietary regulations, etc. With these audiences, Paul was at pains to show that Christ is the fulfilment of the law for righteousness because we can only become righteous before God by trusting in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He showed from scripture that he was under no obligation to try and keep the law in order to be accepted by God. His faith was in Christ's righteousness, his death, his resurrection on his behalf. So he showed Jesus as the fulfilment of the law. So in Acts 16 verse 2, Paul circumcised Timothy right after the Jerusalem council had said that the Gentiles no longer needed to be circumcised. Now that might seem like a contradiction, but why did he do it? He did it because he realised circumcision did not commend anyone to God, nor uncircumcision. So he was free to do it for the sake of reaching out with the gospel. There was a gospel freedom that he exercised so that Timothy might be able to accompany him and minister to those who are under the law. Because if they got wind of the fact that he was uncircumcised, he wouldn't be allowed in. He couldn't eat with Jews. So for the sake of the gospel, Paul does this. He's not relying on Timothy's circumcision to make him right with God. Timothy wasn't thinking that. But he was free for the sake of the gospel to do it. But when he met Peter in Galatians 2, the apostle Peter, who had been eating with Gentiles... And then some believers came along, like those under the law, who believed that it was wrong to eat with Gentiles, that was forbidden in the law. He withdrew. Peter had withdrawn himself from eating with Gentiles. And when Paul saw that, he opposed him to his face. And he said, you're not acting in line with the gospel. Food does not commend us to God. We cannot obey the law to, to make ourselves righteous with God. God does not require this of believers. And in fact, for the sake of Gentiles, we should be meeting together so that we show the oneness that we have in our Lord Jesus. So on the one hand, he circumcises Timothy in order to win an audience with those he's trying to reach. On the other hand, he opposes someone who's not acting in line with that gospel. 
That's part of what it means for Paul to be all things to all men so that by all possible means he might reach some. He then says to those not having the law, that's Gentiles, both Greeks and non-Greeks, who are sometimes called barbarians, among these people, Paul didn't have to worry about circumcision and Jewish dietary regulations and feasts. He was free to get to the heart of the message more directly. He proclaimed Christ crucified and risen to redeem people from the curse of sin. The curse of sin and death was lifted through Jesus who died and rose again on behalf of all who will receive him. And so he proclaims that message to the Gentiles. And wherever he did, many Gentiles believed it. And then he taught them how to live pure God-honouring lives and abstain from idolatry and sexual immorality. He didn't lay dietary regulations on them except to avoid eating meat that had been strangled you know, to, and not eat blood because that was part of the uh, regulation that came out of the um, Council of Jerusalem. But other than that, the Gentiles were under no obligation to observe special Jewish laws. So he says, in effect, when I work with Gentiles, I live like a Gentile, not following the Jewish law. I do this in order to win Gentiles to Christ. This does not mean, however, that I live outside the scope of God's law. On the contrary, I really do follow Christ's law because he's showing them the full intention and meaning of the law as it points to Christ. And then he identifies the weak, verse 22. To the weak, these were believers, whether Jewish or Gentile, whose consciences had not been trained sufficiently by the gospel to distinguish what is wise from what is foolish or to recognise unbalanced teaching or discern truth from error in what they listened to and accepted. It's a bit like in Hebrews 5, uh, 13 and 14. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Paul was very patient with weak believers. He worked hard to ground them in the gospel and show them how to digest its teaching. He knew how naive and vulnerable they were, just like babies. They needed to, to be given the right food. So, because they would be susceptible to being caught up with all kinds of unhelpful teaching. So what drove Paul in all his endeavours with Jews and those under the law, with Gentiles and weak believers, was that he did all this for the sake of the gospel so that he could share in the blessings of the gospel. He wanted to proclaim that good news of Jesus in such a way for each grouping of people that he would maximise their ability to hear what he was saying and take it on board and let it take root in their hearts. The gospel still produces this kind of dynamic lift in us today. Think about it. When you find yourself... 
Um, move to make changes in your priorities because of the sacrifice Jesus made for you, the gospel is dynamically lifting you. When you find compassion rising in you towards someone who has wronged you, the gospel is changing you. When you find yourself going the second mile to help someone, especially someone that you wouldn't have natural affinity with, who may not be your friend, the gospel is bearing fruit in you. When you find yourself not as quick to retaliate and more thoughtful about the needs of others, God is at work in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. The gospel is changing you. So meditate on that gospel. Give yourself to it. Think about God's riches at Christ's expense. and Let it take deep root in you to the point where it starts to shape your priorities and choices. And that's what Paul goes on to talk about next. He says in verses 24 to, to the end of the chapter... There's a need for self-discipline. It's not going to be easy. You don't just go on a romantic wing and a prayer, oh, I'll proclaim the gospel to these people and wow, that'll be fantastic. There's, it's really got some implications for us. This is what, listen to what Paul says next. As the gospel does its work, it brings about a particular response, living in line with the priorities of the gospel. The gospel starts to bring us into shape. God brings us back into alignment with his plans and his purposes. So verse 24, he says, run in such a way as to get the prize and not be disqualified for the prize, verse 27. I suspect Paul had meditated long and hard on the words of Jesus, calling us to deny self and take up our cross and follow him. And what will it profit us if we gain the whole world and lose our own soul? Because the gospel motivated and guided the whole way he lived, for the sake of others and the eternal prize of God, he trained himself to live in alignment with the gospel. So Paul moves from how and why he acted towards others to explain how and why he acts towards himself under God, like a runner and a boxer in his quest to succeed in what he did. And the Corinthians were familiar with these examples because of the Isthmian Games held every couple of years. And they were familiar with boxing, familiar with running and the rigorous training that the athletes went into. Uh, we, we can see it today with the Olympic Games and what's required. Robert and I have been really enjoying watching, uh, forgive us for this, Coastal Devon and Cornwall with Michael Portillo. And he's been walking around the coastline. It's been quite amazing who he visits, etc. But on an episode a couple of weeks ago, he met a lady who came back utterly exhausted and collapsed in the back of a van. And he went up to her, he's quite outgoing, and he asked, well, what are you doing? And she said, I'm going to run 
this whole walk, 580 kilometres, I'm going to run it and try and beat the, the women's record. He, Michael Pratillo and his, you know, his ex-defence minister under Margaret Thatcher, etc. Oh, and what would that require? And she said, and I'll never forget it, she said, I'll have to run at least 50 kilometres a day and sleep no more than five or six hours a day for nearly a fortnight. Now, that's some discipline. And she recognised she wouldn't be able to do that unless she trained. And she was in training for it. This lady was very committed to achieving her goal. She had just returned from a punishing run, full of sweat, full of exhaustion, but having that goal in front of her. You can't tackle anything worthwhile in life without having some kind of aligning yourself with your plans and purposes because they won't just happen. Nothing just happens. Um, you don't just fall into victory. You don't just um, easily achieve what you want unless you, you've set your sights way too low. So Paul said he struck a blow to his body and made it his slave. Now, I don't think that means, in fact, I'm sure it doesn't mean, what has often been interpreted over the years, self-flagellation. and it's not, He's not saying that. What he is saying, he gives an indication earlier in the chapter. He spoke about working to support himself rather than presuming on the generosity of his hearers. That it would have involved getting up early, Days of hard work, long hours, on top of his preaching and teaching commitments. It was hard work and he, he had to make his body his slave and say, get out of bed, get going. For the sake of those who would hear the gospel. Parents of little children know about this. You, you want, everything in you just wants to sleep in, but they start crying. Well, they come up, Mummy, it's time to get up. Dad, come on, want to kick the football, whatever. And you, you, what can you do? You're not going to be able to sleep. If you, you had to commit to it, it involves sacrifice, raising children. And for the sake of the gospel, it involves sacrifice to reach people who are going to hear the good news. We need to take on board the reality of this. How we behave towards ourselves will affect our ability in how we have behaved towards others for the good of the gospel. So recently I read about an elderly lady pensioner who chose to sacrifice her daily paper and take lukewarm baths in order to save enough money to help support friends on the mission field. She did it year after year. Did God require her to do this? No, you won't read anywhere in the Bible where it says, you shall not have your daily paper. You, sh you shall have lukewarm baths. Did she want to do this? Yes. Was it easy to do? No. Clearly, to do this year after year through long, cold winters for the sake of people far away, this lady must have held in mind what she wanted to achieve under God for his glory so that others would hear the gospel. 
I reckon that involved as much self-discipline as any Olympian. As any Olympian. But she did it for the sake of the gospel. Not for the sake of a wreath that would fade. Not passing glory. Now, I'm not saying we all need to do this sort of thing, but I am saying, I reckon Scripture is teaching, Paul is saying to us, we need to be willing to think about what we can do to sacrifice so that others can hear the good news. And that will involve self-reflection and self-discipline. And the gospel creates in us loving, single-minded devotion to God, and a conscientious commitment to the cause of his kingdom. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. And that's what the gospel produces. It lifts us up to do that. So if we're truly born again, it will be there. It may require some pains to find it and nurture it. Like Paul, we must make it our aim in life, our ambition or goal to love and serve the Lord who loved and served us so completely on the cross. It takes the love of Christ to move us to sacrifice ourselves for the sake of others. So pray. Consider your heart before God. Look at your priorities and seek the grace of God to help you to live in alignment with the gospel, to live in alignment with decision-making and plans and methods that will help promote and further that gospel. Meditate on God's riches at Christ's expense and see what plans can start to take shape in your heart for the sake of the gospel. What practical steps do you and I need to make to see this happen in our lives? But goodwill and loving desire don't guarantee success. You can still be disqualified for the prize and removed from the race if you don't exercise godly caution. So there's caution. He now moves in chapter 10 to give some warnings from Israel's history where they compromised with the nations around them. So it's clear that being all things to all men so that by all possible means some might be saved does not mean participating in their sins. That will dishonour God and disqualify you for running the race. So he gives some examples. And each of his warning examples is taken from Israel's journey in the wilderness. God had said repeatedly, do not be like them. Do not follow their ways. You shall follow my ways and I will be your God and you shall be my people. Yet so often they ignored God's counsel and chose to lean on their own understanding and do as they pleased. So Paul says in chapter 10, verse 6, Now these occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Now think about it, because in the first section there, verses 1 to 5, he's saying all were under the cloud, all went through the sea, all, all of these people were redeemed by God, by his mighty hand from Egypt. 
all drank from, from the water of that rock that followed them. Christ was with them, feeding them, being with them. They benefited from, from, from the message of Christ, from the hope of the gospel. They, they, they were under the blessing of God. Verse 5, nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. And he, he just gives four examples, powerful examples of God judging his people. So verse 7, idolatry, the golden calf incident. And the Lord struck the people with a plague because of what they did with the calf Aaron had made. It was a perversion of the worship of God and he detested it. It could not be tolerated in the name of anything. Sexual immorality, verse 8. And 23,000 men were killed by God after they indulged in sexual immorality with Moabite women who invited them to the sacrifices of their gods. Israel yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor and the Lord's anger burned against them there, Numbers 25. Perversion of sex as God intended it, particularly when it's wedded to... Uh, any kind of worship of other gods, God utterly detests. Testing Christ, verse 9, Numbers 21. The people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and Moses and said, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in this wilderness? There's no bread, there's no water. We detest this miserable food. And that food was manna from heaven, God's provision. It was quail. It was water from the rock. And they said, we detest it. And the Lord sent venomous snakes among them and they bit the people and many Israelites died. God hates it when people distrust him and his provision and the wonder of his plan. Grumbling, verse 10. Korah, Dathan, Abiram and 250 others had risen up insolently against Moses and opposed him and Aaron. So the Lord made the ground to collapse under these people and they were swallowed up alive and taken down into the ground. Now look at what Israel says the next day after that happens. Numbers 16.41. The next day the whole Israelite community grumbled against Moses and Aaron saying, you've killed the Lord's people. So God sent a destroying angel who killed nearly 15,000 of them. God detests it. He hates it. So while the love of Christ guides our relationships, that love must never compromise us to the point of participating in sin. In our zeal to evangelise people of other faiths, we cannot join in worshipping their gods. We cannot afford to condone immoral sexual practices like adultery, multiple sexual partners, homosexual practices, pornography, when God detests these things. If we participate in them, we are dishonouring God. So after giving this considerable thought, I'm prepared to say I doubt that a Christian can attend a same-sex wedding in a truly God-honouring way. 
If we learn anything from Paul's warnings today, we learn that trying to be all things to all men in order to win them to Christ does not justify joining them to witness and celebrate their sinful union. What our society may condone and celebrate does not mean God condones and celebrates. Who are we to try and who are we trying to please, God or man here? Now this person who's been same-sex wedded may be our own son or daughter. But Jesus warns us in Matthew 10:37, anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. If we're not careful, by attending such events, we may end up eventually agreeing with and supporting the sins of people we claim we're trying to reach who are utterly at odds with God's plans and intentions. I can imagine people saying, it's okay, you get used to it after a while. And you say, okay, you may kiss each other and you see two men kissing, two women kissing and people clapping and saying, and you're, if, if there's any sense of righteousness in you, you could not be celebrating that. You could not be saying, wow, that's great. And give them a present and a gift and participate as a witness to it all. You may think what I'm saying is unloving, but I ask you, when it comes to participating in events that are clearly detestable to God, does today's passage give us freedom to RSVP, to attend and witness what is obnoxious to God, or does it call on us to decline the invitation? James 4.4 counsels us, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. This is hard teaching. It requires prayerful decision-making based on God's word. If we follow God's straight and narrow way, we will act in line with the gospel and refuse to take part with those who approve of what God disapproves. It is not wise to set any precedent that risks conveying a mixed message to unbelievers or may prove to be a stumbling block to weak believers. And the promise of chapter 10 and verse 13 is our encouragement. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it, so that you can endure it. We are not the first or the last people to be tempted by spiritual compromise. We need not give in to sin or give up on the gospel. Our Heavenly Father has promised to comfort all who suffer misunderstanding and rejection for the sake of his Son. He will supply all the grace we need to bear our cross and stand up under the pressure of rejection and persecution as we follow our Lord. So in conclusion, I just say these three things. Remind yourself of the gospel each day and intentionally cultivate a heart of convictions about that gospel. 
Secondly, ask the Lord to align your heart and life and decision-making with the gospel for the sake of reaching lost people. Do that. And let the love of Christ guide all your relationships, but never to the point of compromising with sin and giving in. Don't use your freedom to excuse sin. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, our hearts go out for those who, who do not know you, who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. People who think that they're serving you and they're dishonouring you. Or people who think that there's nothing wrong with how they're living when all along you are most upset and concerned that the wages of sin is death. Father, we pray for your grace to reach out, hating even the garment stained by the flesh, but to keep ourselves from idols, to keep ourselves from the idolatry of bowing before popular opinion, kowtowing to the crowd, wanting to please men at the expense of pleasing you. May we not do that, Lord. May we rely on you that you will give us the grace to stand up under it, to bear the indignity as Jesus did, as Paul did. And yet he was giving himself so freely for these people. Father, show us how to give ourselves freely to people for the sake of the gospel, but not to compromise, not to justify participation in things that are obnoxious in your sight. We ask this for the sake of the gospel, that we might share in its blessings, that we would keep ourselves pure, and yet we would be willing to risk and be, uh, have redemptive relationships with such people so that they might know you and the power of your resurrection, that they would share in the dynamic lift of change that you bring through Jesus Christ our Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.